I'm on from down here. Hey, I'm on from up there. All right. Thank you very much. Oh, praise team. You guys are doing such a great job this weekend. Yeah. I'll tell you what. For those of you who don't know, uh, being on praise team is way more than just picking songs and playing an instrument. It's thinking pastorally and being good theologians. The, the content of what we're singing, the content of what we're getting emotional about and responding to is solid. This is good theology. It's lifting our imaginations. It sounds like scripture and it speaks the truth. It's none of this Christian radio cheese. Me and Jesus, everything is just fine. Man, it's hope, it's recognition of brokenness, reality, thought for the future, good theology about the kingdom. Wah! This is great. This is just great. Man, so thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that's my excited word. Bwah. Okay. To the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is right on top of you. It comes with me. And we looked at Jesus as the Messiah, fulfilling the Old Testament hope for God's rescuing hero against evil. Last night we saw that both the rescue and the judgment on evil, the rescue from evil and the judgment on evil, is equally accessible to every human being who's ever lived. Every human being stands guilty of evil and God's judgment because of our own choices, regardless of our background or religious pedigree. And everyone involved in the human shipwreck has a life preserver with their name on it that God is constantly throwing into the water over and over and over and over again for their entire lives. I talked to one student last night. They said, I've been praying for my dad for a long time, and I just, if I'm honest, I just feel like it's never going to happen. And I don't want to think that, and I don't like thinking that, but it's just what it looks like. And the, 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 what I said was, you sound like much of the New Testament. Much of the New Testament, much of the Psalms were written. Lord, how long? There's, there are Psalms that say, how long will the wicked win? This does not look like the way it's supposed to be. The world is supposed to go your way, not the way of the, of the wicked. But the wicked are still on top. How long, Lord? God always says, trust me. Trust me, trust me. I swear I will never stop chasing the people that you're hoping for. Ultimately, it will be their call. They, God will never sort of reach into someone's brain and puppet them to follow him. He doesn't, he doesn't remove our volition. But you stay steady in your prayers and in your hopes and take advantage of the opportunities that start falling in front of you and trust the Lord to take care of the rest. He really will reach those you're, you're hurting for. Mm. Well, we're going to keep coloring in the, the kingdom this morning, and tonight, and tomorrow, looking at what else did the kingdom of God language mean? What other hopes and longings were sort of balled up into this notion of the kingdom of God that would have stirred uh, Jesus' hearers when he started preaching? Another characteristic of the age the prophets talked about when the Messiah comes was, was that it would be a time of the new covenant, a time of the new covenant. Covenant is kind of a foreign word these days, so we're going to talk about it a little bit. A covenant is a solemn agreement, a serious exchange of promise. It's an oath. It's a vow. It's an agreement that binds parties together into some form of ongoing relationship. In our culture, there are different kinds of covenants, right? There are different ways covenants restrict 
Other ways, they give license within certain relationships. Now, for, for, for our culture, what do you think is the most common place where we see covenants on display? A marriage, right? In particular, the wedding ceremony, right? I love preaching to James Brown. The dude laughs even when it's not a joke. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, but the most common place that we see covenants in our culture is at a wedding, right? In a marriage setting, where solemn promises are exchanged between people. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? Yeah? It's not weird if you haven't. That's okay. You'll go to plenty. Like, don't worry. There comes an age group where people just start dropping like flies. You're like, ah, I'm in like six weddings this summer. Oh, my goodness. Then they all start having kids, and then the world becomes crazy. Now... Ladies and gentlemen, think to yourself, what is your favorite part of a wedding? When I go to a wedding, what is your favorite part of the ceremony, of the event? Reception. Only if there's food. Right? Good food. I was one cheap dude when I got married. We had fruit platters and brownies. But here's the thing, here's the thing. I also am a campus pastor, so when it, the word gets out, Jeff's getting married, every bum college student is coming to this wedding. I'm not going to feed you all a meal, all right? You're going to put me in the poorhouse my first day of marriage. You can come and you have a grape and a brownie <laughs> to my wedding. What are some other of your favorite parts of a wedding? Dancing. Dancing at the wedding. Oh, man, yes. Or as seriously white people like me, twitching. I don't dance. I move around. I can't even clap for long enough to stay on beat. I took this, I took this social dance class, you know, where you like learn all the like the swing dancing and salsa and stuff. I was one of like two guys and you know 28 women or whatever. And these women were very attractive and wonderful and they wanted to know about my life and I could not hold a conversation. I'd be I'm sorry, I'm losing count. I'm sorry, I have to I'm sorry. Yeah, hello, you are beautiful. I'm sorry, I can't talk. Dancing. What else do you like about a wedding? The, the vows. Yes. You get a gold star in heaven if you said vows. No, you don't. I'm just kidding. I should bring gold stars. I should just like throw gold stars out to people. There are lots of great parts at a wedding. Some people say, the kiss. I did a wedding this summer, performed a wedding this summer, and I said, I, I you know, now pronounce you man and wife. And everyone cheered and clapped, and they stopped. And the bride was like, uh, can we kiss now? And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, sure. You may now kiss each other. Yeah. And I think it's the last wedding that I will do. So forget the kiss. It's over. But I, I would say that the stuff that God cares about most, the stuff that God really cares about most are the ingredients that provide the most likely success of the covenant that's being made and celebrated that day. The, the parts of the wedding that play the largest role in supporting and sustaining and enhancing and embellishing the, the covenant that's being celebrated and made that day are the vows. And this is a very Old Testament notion. And Jesus agrees with it. Jesus picks up this language. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you make a vow, you are speaking out of what is most truly you. 
In the Old Testament, the, 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 the inner you, the heart, what makes you most especially uniquely you, that's your heart. And it's from this inner sense of ourselves that we make promises. We make oaths. A covenant says there is no circumstance that will undo this covenant. I can be miserable and sick and poor. Have you ever heard wedding vows? These are serious. For better or for worse. That kind of covers everything. No matter what you become, no matter what kind of person you become, I will be with you. No matter what kind of person I become, you will be with me permanently. There's a fantastic article that we have all our leaders read every year. Um, I think it's in the, Sikkim, in the Sikkim binder, so many of you have probably read it. It's called The Power of Promising by Lewis Smedes. Is that in your Sikkim binder, Sikkim students? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Lewis Smedes makes this incredible statement. He said, my wife has been married to four different men, and they've all been me. Right? Because guess what? You grow. You change. You develop. You mature. Certain things are about to get better. Certain things are about to get worse. And a covenant says, no matter what happens, you and I will be together. Um, Smeeds talks about that in making a covenant is one of the few places where human beings actually function like God. I have no crystal ball. I cannot tell you the future. I can't tell you what will happen in two minutes. I can guess, but I can't tell you for sure. But when I make an oath, when I make a covenant, I am telling the future. At least a small sliver of the future. What I'm saying is I'm reaching into the murky unknown of the future and saying there are all kinds of things that I have no idea will be the true at that point. No th all kinds of things I cannot control. But I swear to you this, this one thing I can tell you, I am controlling this aspect of the future. You and me will be together. Jessica, you and I will be together for life, forever. And that is the only thing that lets either Jessica or myself off the hook of our covenant. <coughs> Death. When I was doing pre-engagement counseling with Brady, well, I, was, I did it with David and Shelly Nebel, who are great pastors, but I talked a lot with Brady, too, because he's a mentor of mine. He said, Jeff, you ever think about this? When you make these vows, one of you is swearing to help the other over the bar of death. So I can't tell the future, but I have sworn before God and all those witnesses who love Jessica. You ever done that? If you, if you stand, I don't know if you've ever done that, but if you're married, you've done this. You stand on the altar, and, the, and the, 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 the guy who's doing the wedding says, before God and all these witnesses, and you look out at the witnesses, and all the dudes who love this girl are like, <laughs> and you're like, yes, I swear. It's why you do marriages in communities. Why doing a doing a, a small private nobody sees you wedding is not helpful. It won't help you keep your vows. You didn't say it in front of a lot of people. I can make a New Year's resolution all by myself. Nobody knows if I'm going to keep it or not. If I make a New Year's resolution to you and it doesn't pan out, I'm kind of going to be a little bit more motivated to make sure it pans out. The same is true, much more importantly true, with a wedding covenant. It's why you do weddings in community. That's why weddings are celebrations. Jessica and I ended our vows with the statement, this is my solemn vow. This is the sort of covenant that God makes with his people in the Old Testament. God's first covenant with Israel is described regularly in marriage language. 
regularly in marriage terms. The book of Hosea gives us, the, this is the prophetic book of Hosea, gives us the saddest picture of how this marriage goes. It's a story about the breaking of covenant where Israel is symbolized as a married woman who abandons her husband for multiple men, even though he cared for her lovingly over and over and over. Now, in our own culture, we are in a covenant mess. We are in a covenant mess. And it has seeped into the Christian church culture at an alarmingly similar rate. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You grew up in homes where covenants were broken. In the last prophetic book, Malachi, the Lord says, I hate divorce. I hate it. Now there are very few catch clauses in a marriage situation and a marriage covenant. And the pastoral writers of the New Testament recognize that. There are certain places where they say, Ugh, in this most extreme and rare of circumstances, okay. But you don't have to like it. And God will always hate it. God will always wish it were otherwise. Not in a, you've, you've disappointed me, but I'm sad it went this way. But we've taken these sort of minor, once in a blue moon experiences and made it the norm. Nah, if I'm ready to move on, I'll move on. Breaking covenant is treacherous. It makes you into a liar. When you promise and pledge a thing and then don't do it, don't get in the habit of pledging and then breaking. Don't get in the habit of pledging and then breaking. Even the small things. I was so excited. People wanted to hang out with me yesterday. And people say, hey, we should hang out during free time. And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. I'll be there. Absolutely. And then I slept the whole time. That's small. It's not, you know, the earth doesn't move or, 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 or not move based on how I make those decisions. But I am practicing. If that becomes normal, if I become a normally unreliable person, if those little things begin to stack up, so I become known for being the kind of person who says, oh yeah, yeah, totally, and then doesn't show up. What am I practicing? What am I getting better at? What am I improving upon? Get used to keeping your promises, even little ones. Let it become normal that you are a reliable person of your word. One of the questions that, that we ask ourselves in the pre-engagement class, and it's funny, you, 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 the way we do pre-E is you, you fill out these, these questionnaires about each other and about yourself, independent from the other person. So one of the questions Jessica had to answer about me was, what has Jeff demonstrated in his life, tangibly, observably, that convinces you he is the kind of man who keeps promises? Prove it. Give, show, write out evidence of, you know, Jeff is the kind of guy who keeps promises because I've seen him keep this promise, keep this promise, he does this, these things this way, lives this way, lives this way, lives this way, lives this way. Yikes. There are so many people who think that, well, once we're married, then we'll be able to keep these promises. Something magical happens at the altar. It does not. You marry the same person you were dating. Marriage will only change you if you love Jesus and love each other. Okay, there is, a, there is a reasonable amount of growing up that has to happen in marriage. It just has to. That's mine. What? <laughs> but you cannot marry somebody expecting them to be somebody else. You pledge to them. I accept you as you are. 
Not, I swear to always be with you as long as, dot, 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 as long as you start to learn how to manage your money, as long as you learn not to spend this into the poor house, as long as you learn not to be flirtatious in other female relations, in other guy-to-girl relationships. If those things change, then we're ready to get married. No, 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 no. Those things change, and then you get married. Attach yourself to someone who looks like a promise keeper from the get-go. Don't hope they will become that kind of a person. Because an oath matters. An oath means I'm in. That's why, that's why pre-engagement counseling is so important. You've got to know what you're getting into. And talk to couples who've been doing it. You guys have this amazing program down here. Take advantage of it if you can. Do you all make a... I'm sorry. <clears throat> Do y'all make... <laughs> Do all of you... Do you make core covenants in your core? Kind of like, it's like, it's a, and it varies from ministry to ministry, but sometimes it's like a mission statement of the core, or it's an agreement you make to each other. These are the kinds of people we're going to be towards each other. Those core covenants often include things like, I'll be here, right? You can't build a community if nobody shows up. If there's this sort of sparse, once in a while attendance to core, you, nobody can really get to know each other. It doesn't become a safe place to, be, to grow in Christ and grow together in friendship because you never really see who's showing up. You don't really know this guy very well. And so if it's this sort of spotty attendance all year, you don't have a core. You have kind of a, like a, a crumbly pile of people. <laughs> if you say, I am going to be a part of this core, then show up. Core is a great place to start building your promise-keeping muscles. It's not that hard to just come. You want to lead people to Jesus? You better learn how to show up. You want to stick around with Jesus? You better learn how to stick around in the small things. Following Jesus, and this is not an exaggerative statement. Following Jesus. We talked about marriage, we talked about core, we talked about friendships. Following Jesus depends on your ability to keep your promise to him. Now, he will assist you. He will give you everything you need. It's not like, oh, Jesus didn't help me enough, so I walked away. <laughs> Doesn't happen. He will always give you everything you need. But your end of the covenant, just like with Israel, was to keep your promises. You stick with Jesus. Because when life gets difficult, and it will, because we live in a difficult world, and we are difficult people, and we spend relationships with difficult people. Whether it's your own mess splashing into your life or somebody else's mess splashing onto you, life will get difficult. The longer you live, the more attachments you make, the wider your sphere of the people you care deeply, deeply, deeply about, the more opportunity there is for pain and disappointment and difficulty, whether it's you or someone who does it to you. I, I, I have two little boys I have just opened up an enormous jar of vulnerability. These boys will be able to hurt me in ways that I can't even think about. But I watch other parents go through it around me, and I think, oh, Jesus, <sighs> help my kids, please, chase my boys. Following Jesus depends, in the midst of the worst things we go through, Depends on your ability to hang on. He swears to hang on to you. He swears he will hold up his end of the bargain. Because the question becomes, are you following Jesus because he's true or because he makes you happy? 
Are you following Jesus because it's real, it makes the most sense of the human experience, and you actually are banking on him to get you through everything, including over the bar of death? Or because he gets you excited all the time? And only when I'm excited about reading scripture do I read the scripture. Only when I'm excited about about doing things for Jesus do I do things for Jesus. What are you serving him for? Is it because of the, 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 the titillation you get out of it? Because you actually think this is real. This is true. This is legit. Needed. Necessary. Essential. Because only then, when you're not happy, when life has kicked you around, only when you are in covenant with Jesus, not because it's nice and convenient and fun, but because he is actually telling the truth, only then will you keep following. Covenant breaking does severe damage to our lives. It did to Israel when God initiated with Israel just like he did with us and rescued them out of Egypt, again, not because of the good things they had done, and brought them to Mount Sinai and said, today I'm going to explain to you what it looks like to be my people. And as long as you live as my people, we can continue relating as my people. If you want the, if you want the details, read Exodus 19. The whole chapter talks about it. But the rest of the Old Testament is the story of Israel crawling into bed with other gods. Betrayal after betrayal after betrayal of the God who loved them like a lover, like a husband. If you read the book of Judges, you'll see that it's a sordid string of episodes where Israel abandons God. They get blasted by one empire or another. They cry out to God and he delivers them. Like he always does. And then as soon as they get comfortable, they go have sex with some other God again. That's the language of the Old Testament. The prophetic language says Israel goes whoring. I'm telling you, the prophets sting. Because that's what we do when we trust someone other than God for our life, for our security, for our hope. That's what I do. And after Israel has been invaded, kicked around, exiled, and ruined, it is obvious in the prophetic language that the original covenant made on Sinai is in shambles. Like a a broken marriage that has attempted reconciliation for something like 700 years. And every time, every single time, God has been the spouse willing to take back his bride. To forgive her. To start over again. But Israel never changes. So the prophets say to Israel, who God still pursues in his covenant love, God is going to do another one. God is going to make a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 Verse 31 through 34 says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Remember, that's our tag language, right? Oh, kingdom of God language. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time. After that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jeremiah paints us a picture. I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. I get this. This is daddy language. We have a rule. Whenever you cross the street, you have to hold someone's hand. I love it. Owen is so independent. He, he knows how to unlock the door, take off his seatbelt, hop out the door, and he goes and stands in the back of the car, and, he, and he's so distracted, he just, he's always looking around. He's always just looking, but his hand's up. He's just waiting for me to come and take it, and then we can walk across. God picks up his son, Israel, takes him by the hand, and walks with him to safety. It makes me miss my boys. Then, I, I, Jeremiah switches the, the, the image. Prophets do this all the time. The prophetic language hops from metaphor to metaphor. He switches the language to husband language. God is reaching for what will communicate how grievous their betrayal is. Their refusal to keep promises. And so there needs to be a new covenant because Israel broke the first one. The new vow. It will reaffirm the old one. Jeremiah uses first covenant language. When he says, I will be their, peop- I, they, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is Exodus language. So he's not saying, ah, scrap the whole thing, massive rewrite. He's overlaying the new covenant onto the smaller old covenant. Using the same language. I will be their God. They will be my people. It's expanded. It swallows up his promise that keeping the covenant will one day begin to come naturally to Israel. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Keeping the covenant starts becoming natural to people? How is that supposed to happen? How is faithfulness supposed to start coming naturally? We'll get there. But the new covenant is what Israel believed would come when Messiah arrived. It would, and it would make up for their failings at the first one. For any of you who've grown up in the Christian community, you've probably taken the Lord's Supper, communion, or if you come from a Catholic background, the Eucharist. In Luke 22, 19, Jesus says this, This is the last meal that he shares with them. It happens to be a celebration of the Passover meal. And Jesus overlays this new covenant onto the old covenant. He, he overlays this bigger picture of communion onto the smaller, older covenant of Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, starting in verse 14. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, 
gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is not Passover lamb's blood. This is the ultimate Passover lamb's blood, which is poured out for you. This is the new covenant. And Jesus, Jesus reinterprets Passover in light of his impending death. Jesus says, behold, the last lamb who will need to be killed to facilitate covenant life together between you and God. The ultimate lamb. The new covenant starts now. Every time I take communion, I try to treat it as renewing my wedding vows with Jesus. My baptism, I kind of think of that as like, that was like the wedding ceremony. That was the kickoff of my covenant relation with Jesus. The public, communal expression of what God is up to in my life. And communion is my, this is my solemn vow. I remember my vows. Me and Jessica, we, we, we have our, our wedding vows framed and on the wall. And it's really funny where, where we happen to also change the kids' diapers. Because we have our changing table here and our vows are here. <laughs> was not on purpose, but I was just changing diapers, and I'm like, oh, oh, I swore to be faithful in the midst of this, in spite of this. Oh. I, think, I think the Lord maybe guided us on where to put our vows up. It's my own sort of personal response of loyalty, a regular renewal of my vows to him. Now, the question again is still before us, How? Israel had failed so miserably. There were only a sparse few. The, prof the prophetic literature talks about the remnant, the few faithful, so that when Jesus does show up, there are some who are ready. You remember Anna in, the, in, in Jerusalem when, when Jesus is presented as a little baby. She has been praying. You remember Simeon. Simeon says, ha, the Messiah. I've been waiting for this. So somebody's ready. Some people are ready and faithful and hoping for the Messiah to show. There is always a remnant of Israel who are faithful. But the vast majority of Israel fail horribly at this, this project. So what will make this new covenant so different that Jeremiah talks about? When Messiah comes, bringing this new covenant in his wake between God and his people, the Old Testament prophets also relayed this hope. It will be a time of the Holy Spirit. We are starting to reach the full picture of what Israel hoped for in that day when God would again be king through the coming of his Messiah. When the kingdom comes, it will be a time of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit shows up in the very beginning of the Judeo-Christian worldview story. The very beginning of creation, he's there like a mother hen hovering over the new life that's about to break out called creation. God speaks, the Spirit moves, and out of chaos comes cosmos. The Spirit is present at the creation of God's image bearers. This image of God breathing life into human beings. It's an image of God's breath, God's Spirit being a part of the life giving to human beings. He's also called the Spirit of Revelation in the Old Testament. In other words, he reveals to, to, to Revelation, is, it sounds like you know, some huge mystical experience. Really, it just means turning the lights on. You walk into a dark room, you turn the lights on. Ah, revelation! 
Exactly. The room has been revealed to you. So for people living in a dark world, we need to walk around and start turning the lights on for people. Let me show you what it's really like. The Spirit shows us what it's really like. The Spirit flicks the lights on to the human experience. And he's also called the Spirit of Life. It's the, it's the very Spirit of God who sustains creation, who makes sure every heart keeps beating. There's, I didn't have time to list out all the places where the Spirit's involved in creation maintenance, not just initiation, but maintenance. But, but there, are, there are places where, where Joel will, or Job will say, if you removed your spirit, I would croak immediately. And, and, and the, how, how the, 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 the world systems, the ecosystems, are all still kept running and churning because the Spirit's activity continues. The Spirit was the presence of God's power in the Old Testament. He would come upon the prophets and he would be with the kings. And it was by his company with them that they could say, Thus saith the Lord, because of what the Spirit has been saying to me. And the Spirit brings with him the mind and the heart of God. Not like, may the force be with you, power. It's not like, the Spirit is with me, wah, I move that speaker across the room. It's not that at all. It's a moral power. It's, it's the ability to live and, 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 and uh, adapt myself to the character of God. It's the power toward goodness, toward purity, toward life-giving, as opposed to the powers that slowly bring types of death or despair. And the prophet said, when Messiah comes, it will be a breaking out of the Spirit. It's going to be marked by the Spirit's activity. And it's, again, it's not that the Spirit will show up for the first time. Again, he's been, he's been here and there and all across the story the whole time, throughout the whole Old Testament. But by the time of the Messiah, the prophets say that that time when Messiah comes, it will be a crescendo of the Spirit's activity. And they talk about this happening in two ways. Two ways you will see the Spirit's renewed activity when Messiah comes. The first relates to this new covenant idea. It relates to how God's people will be able to live faithfully in His new covenant. God promises an inner reality to what the Spirit does to those who follow the Messiah into the kingdom of God, as well as an outer reality, an external result of the internal work. So there's internal stuff and external stuff. We're going to look at it. The Spirit is going to do something new on the inside of us, which will have splash-out effects onto the outside world around us. Now remember, we were left with a puzzle in Jeremiah. When he speaks of the new covenant, he says, they will keep my covenant. It will be written on their hearts and minds. In fact, keeping covenant will start to come naturally to them. And we asked, how? Ezekiel gives us how. What makes this happen? What makes me start feeling like God feels? Wanting to even act the way God wants to act. Ezekiel 36. Verse 24 through 27. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. It's part of what John was up to in baptism at the Jordan River. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit inside you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
Again, prophetic, poetic images are fantastic. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. This is the access. He is the access to our ability to live faithfully in the new covenant, the new version of being God's people. God does a heart transplant in us. And again, in the, in the, in the biblical sense, the heart is not just how you feel. It's, it's, the, it's the encapsulation of who you truly are, the essence of you. And God says, I'm going to give you a whole new you on the inside. I'm going to birth you over again with a new heart. And this image of a heart of stone and a heart of flesh, I'm going to take this cold, inflexible, rigid, dead heart that's in your chest right now, that's in your, that, that is you right now, and I'm going to replace it with a pulsating, living, warm heart to who I am and what I'm about. And the mechanism for this surgery, the tools that I will use for this surgery is a single tool, one scalpel called the Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity will be the, the, the instigator of this new heart in our, inside of us. By the time we get to the New Testament, this experience will be called a number of things. New creation, being born again. Because the mark of a Christian, the mark of a, of a person who's attached themselves to Jesus and is, and is living out kingdom life in the here and now, is that they have a new heart towards God. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You've seen this to be true in the friends around you who, who you've met who are Christians but didn't always used to be, right? Maybe this is your own story. Where you have a new heart towards God, this new heart begins to rearrange your heart toward everything that, in a way that brings true life. It's not magic. And it's also not always right away. Sometimes all kinds of things change really fast. Usually it takes time. That which you used to love but brought damage and death, you begin to distaste and then to hate. And that which you used to, used to repulse you about scripture or about God or about those weird Christians becomes more appealing to you and soon you love those things that God loves. And you find yourself hungry for the things that he values and, and, and your appetite begins to shrink for the things you used to enjoy that were destructive. It's incredible. And Israel hoped that one day that would become the normative experience of God's people. And look at what happens in the New Testament. In Romans 8, Paul says, it's here. The kingdom has come. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. We just could not pull it off. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sinful offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We now have access to this new covenant and we have the ability to keep it because God's spirit will help us. God's Spirit will give you everything you need to stick with Jesus. There's a, great, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians. Paul believed this with all his heart. 
He says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But even when you're tempted, God is faithful. He will assist you. I've talked to so many guys. I just couldn't help it. Baloney! If you are a Christian, you could because the Spirit is inside of you. You can resist. It will not be easy. It will not be always victory every single time. But you can resist. Do not tell me I could not help myself. That is a lie from the devil. Because it's not just yourself who is helping you. God's power is accessible to you in your battle with sin. In your battle, in your process of transferring from life by the flesh to life by the spirit. He will assist you. He swears it. He is in your guts and in your imagination and in your minds to help you. He will not ask you to do something that is impossible to you without assisting. He's too generous for that. That's what goes on inside. There's also things that go on outside. Exterior things. When the Spirit comes with Messiah, the prophet Joel says this is what's going to happen. Joel 2. Verse 28 through 32. Section is called the Day of the Lord. Heard that before. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Yeah, we'll stop there. It gets a little weird after that. Blood and fire, billows of smoke. But here's the point. When Joel first prophesied, these things, this would have been very unusual to the Old Testament listeners. They would have said, what? Spirit poured out on all people? What are you talking about? How can that be true? Because in the time of Joel, the only, period, the only people who God's Spirit ever came upon were the heroes. God's kings, or the priests, or the prophets. It was normal for them to experience the power of the Spirit coming upon them and helping them to do what God expected of them. And they were almost always male, not always, but almost, and they were almost always old, because there was an assumption that the older were wiser because they had combined their life experience with their knowledge. The text says, instead of it just being the elders, just the men, to be seers, to have visions, to be prophets, seeing reality with the wisdom of the Spirit, no, suddenly this can come to young men. The Spirit in those days will use young men the way he uses older men in Israel's story. I actually think that I can learn from you because you have God's Spirit on you. If you are a Jesus person, I have much to learn from you because God's Spirit will use you to facilitate my own discipleship. And I'm not even that old. Older. I told one time at CCF on Friday night one night, I said, I talked about being 30, and I sat down, and Jessica said, you're 31. <laughs> I said, I've just gotten used to being 30. I'm 31? Really? Are you sure? She goes, Jeff, you were born in 1981. It's 2012. Do the math. <laughs> I am 31. So, so at the end of the night, I had to get up there and say, um, by the way, I'm 31. But young men suddenly become as equipable tools 
of the Old Testament king of the universe, as older experienced men were. And it's not just men. Men and women will prophesy. They will announce and declare the mind and heart and word of God. This is not the normal course of affairs for women in Israel, or most of the Middle East still, for that matter. Women don't get educated, and you don't get to read Torah outside of the home in Old Testament Israel. But when the kingdom comes, on your sons and your daughters, the Spirit will be poured out, and they will prophesy. They will speak on God's behalf. One of the marks of Jesus' early ministry are the places of importance and authority that Jesus gives women. Ladies, the most free, the most, the most secure, the most empowering place for you to be is right next to Jesus. The very first messenger of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is a woman. In the early church, there are women prophets who declare the mind and heart of God to the brand new Jesus movement. There are women who plant churches and who disciple men. This is not a corruption of God's created order in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a fulfillment of the end of the curse that has put men and women at odds with each other since Genesis 3. This isn't some weird cultural capitulation to the feminist movement. Although there are a lot of good things that came out of that. There's a lot of negative things too. We are trying to get back to what Scripture tells us is true. I don't care about cultural movements. I care about Scripture and being shaped to it. And it says that women can be empowered by the Spirit to speak prophetically to whoever. When the Spirit comes... He is going to break down the social stratifications among his people. It's not just men. It's not just women. It's not just old. It's not just young. It's also the rich and the poor. He says, I will even pour my spirit out on the servants in the household. Your slaves will hear from me, and you will need to listen to them. There is no social status that is outside of God's ability to use them as a voice box. So in, in the New Testament, Paul can say, there is now no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, no slave, no free. Now again, you have to think about context. Yes, there are Paul. There are still men. There are still Jews. What are you talking about, psycho? That's not what he means. He doesn't mean they don't exist. He means they do not exist as things that determine your value, your identity, or your ability to be used in service of the kingdom of God. God's spirit becomes the mark of your position in the family. And so the poorest man, filled with God's spirit, can tell the rich to repent. And a woman in the persecuted church in China can preach on a Sunday morning because the Chinese government thinks that by putting all the men in prison, they'll squash the Jesus movement. Not happening! In the Chinese culture that does not value men, women as highly as men, they think, oh, we'll arrest all the men. Put them in jail, we'll squash the movement. No way. The Spirit comes on women and they keep trucking. They're changing the world in the East. It's fantastic. What an opportunity. Ah! That's what happens when Messiah comes. That's what happens when Messiah comes. He offers us his new covenant. His access to new life, of right living that is actually possible because of his spirit inside of us. 
For those of you who have ever felt extremely discouraged by the long road of your own recovery, by the long time it takes your character to actually change course, take comfort in this. The Spirit of God is inside of you. And sometimes He does emergency surgery and things happen quick. Most times, He takes your life. He uses the people around you. He uses your experiences. He uses the counsel you gather around yourself. He uses your day-to-day disciplines to slowly, over time, build you into the person He wants you to be. But He is at work, even if it feels slow. He swears to you. His Spirit is inside of you and is changing you, and He is giving you the juice to follow Him and obey Him in His new covenant. He is writing His law on your hearts. He is changing you. You are growing. You will be different. You will be able to look back and say, look what the Lord has done in my life. Holy moly, and praise Him. And when Messiah comes, the Spirit of God goes from being the superpower of the leaders of Israel to the normative superpower of every single person who attaches themselves to Jesus and the kingdom that comes with Him. You and I have the access, have the ability to be close to God in the way that Moses was, that Abraham was, that King David was, that the prophets were. It may not look the same because it didn't look the same for them. But we have access to that kind of intimacy, that kind of experience of God, because His Spirit is now liberally splashed out on everybody who attaches themselves to the Jesus movement. It's not just for the special of the few or the guy who happens to speak behind this thing. It's for you all. And your campus needs to hear the voice of God. And God thinks you can pull it off because he's in you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about what this life can look like in the gathered community of God. He tells this brand new church in Corinth, which again was like New York, San Francisco, Las Vegas, all smashed into one port city. He tells them, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. That's part of what this package looks like. These, these, these abilities that are outside of yourself to bless and love others. They're not, they're not spiritual strokes. They're not like, ooh, look at this spiritual merit badge I got. I have this spiritual gift of the Spirit. No, 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 no. It's, its function is for the enhancement of the people around you. Paul is very clear. They are given for the building up of the people around you, of the church, for putting courage in people, for comforting people, for, for, for helping them to move with the mission. How hungry are we for spiritual gifts? Paul says you should eagerly desire them. How hungry are we to say, Spirit, use me. Put something in me that is not natural, that does not come from me by itself, so that I can bless the people that I need to bless. When I was first getting, getting familiar with this notion of spiritual gifts, I, this was not in my background at all. And I was really uncomfortable with it. It wasn't until I started leading core. I realized, oh, I need some spiritual gifts. (coughs) Guys would come to me with these questions or these needs or these wounds that I was completely unfamiliar with. A guy whose experience I could not relate with in the slightest, but he needed a touch from God. And I said, Jesus, I don't have what it takes to minister to this guy. I cannot love him the way he loves. I don't know what to do. I don't know the first thing I would say to this guy. Would you help me? Bang! I got an idea. Okay. (laughs) I said, you know what I think the Lord wants you to hear? I think the Lord wants you to hear this. And the guy starts crying. He said, you're the first one who hasn't condemned me and has offered me a way forward. And I said, praise Jesus. (laughs) This this is real. It actually works. This is awesome. 
What is your openness to the Spirit of God? What is your hunger level for experiencing Him? You cannot expect to live with Jesus or like Jesus without His interior power in the guts of your minds and emotions and His exterior impacts on the people around you. I want to end with a picture. Shakespeare says in one of his plays, all the world's a stage and we the players. If you were to imagine your life as a stage and you're a character on that stage, where on the stage of your life would you say, if you were honest with yourself, where on the stage of your life is the Holy Spirit? Just take, take one minute to write in your journal, to write on the notes you're taking. If my life is a stage and I'm a character on that stage, where on the stage is the Holy Spirit? What role, do, if I'm honest with myself, what role do I see him playing on the stage of my life? Just think about that for one minute of quiet. I'm not sure what you wrote down, but in my own story, when I was asked this question, I said, well, the Spirit is kind of in charge of it all, right? He's kind of like the, 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 the manager who stands off to the side and shouts people's lines when they forget, right? and he's the guy who's like, you know, pulling the ropes, making sure the set changes go okay and everything. He's kind of like the, 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 the manager backstage side, making sure everything works out in the end. And it wasn't until I started examining Scripture that I realized that life in the Spirit should be more like a dance. In Galatians 5.25, Paul writes, since we live by the Spirit, since this is our new way of living, since this is our new access to keeping the new covenant in the kingdom of God, since we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Back to my social dancing class. The Holy Spirit is meant to be a dancing partner on center stage. We're still on the stage. We still have a role to play. But, but this, we follow the Spirit's lead. And as the Spirit leads carefully and adventurously, we keep in step with Him. Life in the Spirit is like dancing. The Spirit isn't distant from me. He's leading me. He's the lead. I'm the responder. I'm the follower of the project. What would your life be like if you sought to keep in step with the Spirit? I think you would find yourself awfully close to Jesus and living life under this new covenant wherever you found yourself. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you for offering us a new accessible covenant. We thank you for writing your law on our minds and our hearts by your Spirit. Spirit, we thank you for your eagerness to teach us who you are. We thank you for your eagerness to remind us of all the things that Jesus taught the disciples. We thank you for you for your involvement in making the word come alive to us so that we can say to each other, thus saith the Lord, thus hath the Lord already said in his word. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us to keep in step with your spirit. Life in your kingdom is a dance. Lord, would we dance with you? Would we keep in step with your spirit as we try to live out life under this new covenant as your new people? And we praise you for it. Thank you for what you're up to in us.